Chapter 26 of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jason in Panama. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. The Rival Sisters. Continued. Louis XV's involuntary exclamation when he first set eyes on the loveliness of Madame de la Tournelle. Heavens, how beautiful she is, becomes intelligible when we look on Natier's picture of this fairest of the Dinelle sisters in his allegory of the daybreak and read the contemporary descriptions of her charms. She ravished the eye, we are told, with her skin of dazzling whiteness her elegant carriage, her free gestures, the enchanting glance of her big blue eyes, a gaze of which the cunning was veiled by sentiment, by the smile of a child, moist lips, a bosom surging, heaving, ever agitated by the flux and reflux of life, by a physiognomy at once passionate and mutinous. And to these seductions were added a sunny temperament, an infectious gaiety of spirit and a playful wit which made her infinitely attractive to men much less susceptible than the amorous louis it is little wonder then that in the reaction which followed his stormy grief for his dead love the comtesse de vintimille he should turn from the lacrimose companionship of madame de mailly to bask in the sunshine of this third of the beautiful sisters madame de la tournelle and that the wish to possess her should fire his blood. But Madame de la Tournelle was not to prove such an easy conquest as her two sisters, who had come almost unasked to his arms. At the time when she came thus dramatically into his life, she was living with Madame de Mazarin, a strong-minded woman who had no cause to love Louis, who had thwarted and opposed him more than once, and who was determined at any cost to keep her protégé and pet out of his clutches and his desires had also two other stout opponents in cardinal fleury his old mentor and maurepas the most subtle and clever of his ministers each of whom for different reasons was strongly adverse to this new and dangerous liaison which would make him the tool of richelieu's favourite and richelieu's party thus for months louis found himself baffled in all his efforts to win the prize on which he had set his heart until in september seventeen forty two one formidable obstacle was removed from his path by the death of madame de mazarin to madame de la tournelle the loss of her protectress was little short of a calamity for it left her not only homeless but practically penniless and in her extremity she naturally turned hopeful eyes to the king of whose passion she was well aware at least she hoped he might give her some position at his court which would rescue her from poverty when she begged maurepas madame de mazarin's kinsman and heir to appeal to the king on her behalf his answer was to order her and her sister madame de flavacourt to leave the hotel mazarin thus making her plight still more desperate but fortunately in this hour of her greatest need she found an unexpected friend in louis's ill-used queen who ignorant of her husband's infatuation for the beautiful madame de la tournelle sent for her spoke gracious words of sympathy to her 
and announced her intention of installing her in madame de mazarin's place as a lady of the palace thus did fortune smile on madame just when her future seemed darkest but her troubles were by no means at an end fleury and maurepas were more determined than ever that the king should not come into the power of a woman so alluring and so dangerous and they exhausted every expedient to put obstacles in her path and to discover and support rival claimants to the post for once however louis was adamant he had not waited so long and feverishly for his prize to be balked when it seemed almost in his grasp madame de la tournelle should have her place at his court and it would not be his fault if she did not soon fill one more exalted and intimate thus it was then that fleury submitted to him the list of applicants with la tournelle's name at the bottom he promptly rewrote it at the head of the list and handed it back to the cardinal with the words the queen is decided and wishes to give her the place we can picture madame de Mailly's distress and suspense while these negotiations were proceeding she had as we have seen in the previous chapter been supplanted by one sister in the king's affection and just as she was recovering some of her old position in his favour she was threatened with a second dethronement by another sister in her alarm she flew to madame de la tournelle to set her fears at rest one way or the other can it be possible that you are going to take my place she asked the tears streaming down her cheeks quite impossible my sister answered madame with a smile and madame de Mailly, thus reassured returned to versailles the happiest woman in france to learn a few days later that it was not only possible it was an accomplished fact for the second time and now as she knew well finally she was ousted from the affection of the king she loved so sincerely and again it was a sister who had done her this grievous wrong she was determined however that she would not quit the field without a last fight and she knew she had doughty champions in fleury and maurepas who still refused to acknowledge defeat although madame de la tournelle was now installed in the palace the day of louis's conquest had not arrived the gratification of his passion was still thwarted in several directions not only was madame de Mailly's presence a difficulty and a reproach to him his new favourite was by no means willing to respond to his advances her heart was still engaged to the du d'agnois and was not hers to dispose of richelieu however was quick to dispose of this difficulty he sent the handsome duc de languedoc exposed him to the attractions of a pretty woman and before many weeks had passed was able to show madame de la tournelle passionate letters addressed to her rival by her lover as evidenced of the worthlessness of his vows thus arming her pride against him and disposing her at last to lend a more favourable ear to the king as for madame de Mailly, her shrift was short in spite of her tears her pleadings her caresses louis made no concealment of his intention to be rid of her no sorrow no humiliation was lacking in the death struggle of love the king spared her nothing he did not even spare her those harsh words which snapped the bonds of the most vulgar liaisons and the climax came when he told the heartbroken woman as she cringed pitifully at his feet you must go away this very day my sacrifices are finished she sobbed 
a little later to the judas richelieu when with friendly words he urged her to humour the king and go away at least for a time it will be my death but i will be in paris to-night and while madame de Mailly was carrying her crushed heart through the darkness to her exile the king and richelieu disguised in large perukes and black coats were stealing across the great courtyards to the rooms of madame de la tournelle where the king's long waiting was to have its reward and the following day the usurper was callously writing to a friend doubtless meuse will have informed you of the trouble i had in ousting madame de Mailly. at least i obtained a mandate to the effect that she was not to return until she was sent for no portrait says de goncourt referring to this letter is to be compared with such a confession it is the woman herself with the cynicism of her hardness her shameless and cold-blooded ingratitude it is as though she drives her sister out by the two shoulders with those words which have the coarse energy of the lower orders louis at last happy in the achievement of his desire was not long in discovering that in the third of the nell sisters he had his hands more full than with either of her predecessors madame de Mailly and the comtesse de vintimille had been content to play the role of mistress and to receive the king's none too lavish largesse with gratitude madame de la tournelle was not so complaisant so easily satisfied she intended and she lost no time in making the king aware of her intention to have her position recognized by the world at large to reign as montespan had reigned to have the treasury placed at her disposal and her children if she had any made legitimate her last stipulation was that she should be made a duchess before the end of the year and to all these proposals louis gave a meek assent to show further her independence she soon began to drive her lover to distraction by her caprices and her temper she tantalized at once rebuffed and excited the king by the most adroit comedies and those coquetries which are the strength of her sex assuring him that she would be delighted if he would transfer his affection to other ladies and while the favourite was thus revelling in the insolence of her conquest her supplanted sister was eating out her heart in paris her despair was terrible the trouble of her heart refused consolation begged for solitude found vent every moment in cries for louis those who were around her trembled for her reason for her life again and again she made up her mind to start for the court to make a final appeal to the king but each time when the carriage was ready she burst into tears and fell back upon her bed as for louis chilled by the coldness of his mistress distracted by her whims and rages his heart often yearned for the woman he had so cruelly discarded and separation did more than all her tears and caresses could have done to awake again the love he fancied was dead when madame de la tournelle paid her first visit as maitre en titre to choisy nothing would satisfy her but an escort of the noblest ladies in france including a princess of the blood her progress was that of a queen and in return for this honour wrung out of the king's weakness she repaid him with weeks of coldness and ill-humour she refused to play at cavagnon with him she barricaded herself in her room refusing to open to all her lover's knocking and vented her vapours on him with or without provocation until as she considered she had reduced him to a becoming submission 
Then she used her power and her coquetries to wheedle out of him one concession after another, including a promise by the king to return unopened any letters Madame de Mailly might send to him. Nor was she content until her sister was finally disposed of by the grant of a small pension and a modest lodging in the Luxembourg. Before the year closed, Madame de la Tournelle was installed in the most luxurious apartments at Versailles, and Louis, now completely caught in her toils, was the slave of her and his senses, flinging himself into all the license of passion, and reviving the nightly debauches from which the dead comtesse had weaned him. And while her lover was thus steeped in sensuality, his mistress was, with infinite tact, pursuing her ambition. Affecting an indifference to affairs of the state, she was gradually, and with seeming reluctance, worming herself into the position of chief counsellor, and while professing to despise money she was draining the exchequer to feed her extravagance. Never was king so hopelessly in the toils of a woman as Louis, the well-beloved, in those of Madame de la Tournelle. He accepted as meekly as a child all her coldness and caprices, her jealousies and her rages, and was ideally happy when, in a gracious mood, she would allow him to assist at her toilet as the reward for some regal present of diamonds, horses, or gowns. It was after one such privileged hour that Louis, with childish pleasure, handed to his favourite the patent, creating her Duchess de Chateauroux, enclosed in a casket of gold, and with it a rapturous letter in which he promised her a pension of eighty thousand livres, the better to maintain her new dignity. Having thus achieved her greatest ambition, the Duchess, as we must now call her, aspired to play a leading part in the affairs of Europe. France and Prussia were leagued in war against the forces of England, Austria, and Holland. This was a seductive game in which to take a hand, and thus we find her stimulating the sluggard kingliness in her lover, urging him to leave his debauches and to lead his armies to victory, assuring him of the gratitude and admiration of his subjects. Nothing less, she told him, would save his country from disaster. To this appeal and temptation, Louis was not slow to respond, and in May 1744, we find him, to the delight of his soldiers and all France, on the seat of war, reviewing his troops, speaking words of high courage to them, visiting hospitals and canteens, and actually sending back a haughty message to the Dutch. I will give you your answer in Flanders. No wonder the army was roused by enthusiasm, or that it exclaimed with one voice, At last we have found a king. So strong was Louis in his new martial resolve that he actually refused Madame de Chateauroux permission to accompany him. France was delighted that at last her king had emancipated himself from petticoat influence, but the delight was short-lived, for before he had been many days in camp, the Duchess made her stately appearance, and saws and hammers were at work making a covered way between the house assigned to her and that occupied by the king. A fortnight later Ypres had fallen, and she was writing to Richelieu, This is mighty pleasant news and gives me huge pleasure. I am overwhelmed with joy to take Ypres in nine days. You can think of nothing more glorious, more flattering to the king, and his great-grandfather, great as he was, never did the like. But grief was coming quickly on the heels of joy. 
The king was seized with a sudden and serious illness, after a banquet shared with his ally, the king of Prussia, and in a few days a malignant fever had brought him face to face with death. Madame de Chateauroux watched his sufferings with the eyes of despair. Leaning over the pillow of the dying man, aghast and trembling, she fights for him with sickness and death, terror and remorse. With locked door she keeps her jealous watch by his bedside, allowing none to enter but Richelieu, the doctors and nurses, whilst outside are gathered the princes of the blood and the great officers of the court, clamoring for admittance. It was a grim environment for the deathbed of a king, this struggle for supremacy in which a frail woman defied the powers of France for the monopoly of his last hours, and chief of all the terrors that assailed her was the dread of that climax to it all, when her lover would have to make his last confession, the price of his absolution being, as she well knew, a final severance from herself. Over this protracted and unseemly duel, in which blows were exchanged, entrance was forced, and princes and ministers crowded indecently around the king's bed, over the duchess's tearful pleadings with the confessor to spare her the disgrace of dismissal, we must hasten to the crowning moment when Louis, feeling that he was dying, hastily summoned a confessor who, a few moments later, flung open the door of the closet in which the duchess was waiting and weeping, and pronounced the fatal words, The king commands you to leave his presence immediately. Then followed that secret flight to Paris, amid a torrent of maledictions, the duchess hiding herself from view as best she could, and at each town and village where horses were changed, slinking back and taking refuge in some by-road until she could resume her journey. Then it was that in her grief and despair she wrote to Richelieu, Oh, my God, what a thing it all is! I give you my word, it is all over with me. One would need to be a poor fool to start it all over again. But Louis was by no means a dead man. From the day on which he received absolution from his manifold sins, he made such haste to recover that, within a month, he was well again and eager to fly to the arms of the woman he had so abruptly abandoned with all other earthly vanities. It was one thing, however, to dismiss the Duchess, and quite another to call her back. For a time she refused point-blank to look again on the king who had spurned her from fear of hell, and when at last she consented to receive the penitent at Versailles, she let him know in no vague terms that it would cost France too many heads if she were to return to his court. Vengeance on her enemies was the only price she would accept for forgiveness, and this price Louis promised to pay in liberal measure. One after the other, those who had brought about her humiliation were sent to disgrace or exile, from the Duc de Châtillon to La Rochefoucauld and Perseux. Maurepas, the most virulent of them all, the king declined to exile, but he consented to a compromise. He should be made to offer Madame an abject apology, to grovel at her feet, a punishment with which she was content and when the great minister presented himself by her bedside, in fear and trembling, to express his profound penitence, and to beg her to return to court, all she answered was, Give me the king's letters, and go. The following Saturday she fixed on as the day of her triumphant return, but it was death that was to raise her from the bed on which she had received the king's submission at the hands of his prime minister. 
Within twenty-four hours she was seized with violent convulsions and delirium. In her intervals of consciousness she shrieked aloud that she had been poisoned, and called down curses on her murderer, Morpaw. For eleven days she passed from one delirious attack to another, and as many times she was bled. But all the skill of the court physicians was powerless to save her, and at five o'clock in the morning on the 8th December, the Duchess drew her last tortured breath in the arms of Madame de Mailly, the sister she had so cruelly wronged. Two days later, the Goncourt tells us, she was buried at St. Sulpice, an hour before the customary time for interments, her coffin guarded by soldiers to protect it from the fury of the mob. As for Madame de Mailly, she spent the last years of her troubled life in the odor of a tardy sanctity, washing the feet of the poor, ministering to the sick, bringing consolation to those in prison. And she was laid to rest among the poorest in the Cimetière des Innocentes, wearing the hair-shirt which had been part of her penance during life, and with a simple cross of wood for all monument. End of chapter 26